The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, and right across from me is the one, the only, the Sasquatch herself, Tammy the Gur Underwood. Say hi, Tam. Hi. <laughs> well, that's a sneaky girl. That was like you were sneaking up on that. That is like, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. Deep from a cavern on Mount Hood. We hear. Within the caves. <laughs> we hear the Sasquatch. <laughs> All right. So you gave me this name, Sharon Kine. I've never heard of her before. Yeah. She's um during the early 1939-ish. Oh, no. That's when she was born. So oh, That her... sounds like my kind of girl. Yeah, so her crimes actually started in 1960. That means 1960, Scott. I bet you she was doing it through 69, too. Are we done? (laughs) Your mom said she wouldn't mind that. Do you want me to start the episode, or do you want me to come over there and choke you? I'm waiting for your mom to choke me in a way different way. Shut up. Anyways, I'm moving on. So, um, with this case, I was originally drawn to it because as of 2022, Sharon Kine, which is spelled K-I-N-N-E, holds the record for the longest outstanding arrest warrant on a murder charge in the criminal history of Kansas City, Missouri. God damn. Yeah. You go, Sharon. I know, right? And her case is also one of the longest outstanding felony warrants in the history of the United States. Right? And, however, the deeper I dug into the case, the more intriguing it became. So deep into Sharon? Yeah. I fucking you. I found myself shaking my head in wonder and asking, is this for real? Because she was so deep. Yeah. Well, it, not like when we did, Luke, I'm just ignoring you now. Not like when we did, you know, Beavis and Butthead, Lucas and Tool, because we were like, really, dude? This is a cartoon. This is like, did that truly happen? Or is this like, you know, people are embellishing more. But the answer to that question is everything did truly happen. And it'll make you question the competency of the criminal justice system in general. I do that anyway. I give it to the next day. 2023. Especially back. I know, right? But um, Sharon Elizabeth Hall was born in Independence, Missouri on November 30th, 1939. Now, I couldn't find a lot of information on her early childhood. The only significant thing I could find happened in her early teens. While she was in junior high, her parents, Eugene and Doris, moved the entire family to Washington State. However, they returned to Independence when she was 15 years old. So it only they, she was only there for a couple of years. Oh, okay. Yeah. And we, we mean they're here. We're in yeah, Washington right here, now. I she meant moved to the state. They're from Missouri is what I meant. So she was only there. It's, well, Washington's like, a magical place. No, it was like there as in from Missouri, you know, to Washington. Oh, whatever. You know what? I know what I meant, and I'm pretty sure our intelligent listeners did too. It was just your dumbass that didn't Nobody understand. can interpret your Polak speech, okay, you <laughs> yes, Polak? Yes, they can't. Because it's not Polak, it's Dutch. Same thing. Same. Deutsch. Right, watch this, watch this. <laughs> same, same. Same, Negative. same. Female inmate. Negative. Female inmate. <laughs> Anyways, Sharon Elizabeth Hall, like I said, okay. She was 16 years old in the summer of 1956 when she met James Kine at a local church fuck function. Now, he was a 22-year-old college student home from Brigham Young University, BYU, for the summer. That explains everything that's about ready to happen. Like, seriously, no matter what's happened, <laughs> it's a Mormon thing. 
and everything's all messed Don't up. Be, no, I, I understand. No. I understand. Stop it. Not all Mormons are Come, bad. No, they're not. But how often do I have a chance to make fun of the Mormons on this Actually, show? Actually, not very often on this show. It is so rare. You yeah. gave me an opportunity. Okay. Yeah, to, we to really don't have listeners. a lot of Mormons. We have, you know, Christian, devout Christians, like Southern Baptist Christians, um, atheists. We've had, a, you know, quote, unquote, Satanists, which we all know it's like, you know. Um, however... Oh, and James and Sharon became quite an item through the summer and went on dates frequently until James returned to school in the fall. Now, she had dreams that didn't involve her remaining in the small Midwest town where her family was living, which I understand because I wanted to get the heck out of our small town, too. Yeah, but I bet you he was sitting there going to bring her young. <laughs> Shut up. No, she was James. She saw James as a prospective partner and a ticket out. Shortly after he returned to BYU, he received a letter from her stating that she was pregnant and he was the father. So I'm assuming in that short time they were together that summer, they had intercourse. Uh, Otherwise, no, that's unless not how he's that dumb, no, unless he's dumb enough to believe like some other people I've heard that sh- they can get it swimming with each other, which no. Hold that does on. Not happen. We, we got to pause here. We got to pause. Sorry, listeners, because apparently she doesn't know. <sighs> Tammy. Yes, dear. So here's how babies are made. I know how babies are made. When a boy and a girl like each other a lot. But I'm just saying because he was a Mormon, so they usually don't believe in premarital sex is what I'm trying to get. When they like each other a lot. (laughs) I hate you. They go to the back of a car. (laughs) Or a hot tub. Or a hot tub. Or or a hotel room. Or a cornfield. Or a motel room. Or in a park. Or the parents' bedroom when the parents aren't there. Or the hayloft in the bar. Or in a park, straddle, straddling a log. And Only th- because I, 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 I wouldn't know from personal experience on all those things I listened, but from what I've heard. You just sound like you didn't know how babies happen. I'm like, you have like I a nine-foot-tall Asian explain- baby. I know, because I know that some people be like, he was Mormon. So, you know, but apparently he didn't. He was Mormon, but he wanted more woman. <laughs> and he got I it. I hate you. Right brought now. her young. Yeah. So anyways... Bring him young, make him come. That's what I say. After reading the letter, he took a leave of absence from his courses and went back to Independence, Missouri, to face the situation head on. He wasn't going to abandon her. Now, they had a small wedding ceremony on October 18, 1956. However, their original marriage license contained false information, so it truly wasn't valid. And, you know, it wouldn't have been valid in the eyes of the law. It stated that Sharon was an 18-year-old widow and not a 16-year-old girl. Later, when people asked her about that discrepancy, she... Okay. Dang it. There goes my mouse. I found it again. When it's right in front of you? Yeah, Yeah, that happens. Stop it. Stop being mean to me. No, hold on. The story (laughs) is... Let me tell our... This This is is what I get. This is just a little bit. This is just a little bit ago. I'm sitting over here on my side of the desks, and I'm working, and I, I hear... Why the hell is why is it going the, the the mouse arrow thing on the screen going up when I'm pulling it down and why is it going down when I'm going up and I am not a techie like I'm retarded not like at a, all I didn't, but, but I'm surprised he knows how to open his files I'm I'm pretty happy that I could uh, diagnose this problem and solve it I'm, mouse is upside down she said no it's oh yeah no you're right <laughs> it was <laughs> son of a bitch it's upside okay I was like, really well, in I'm my right? defense this mouse is not like you know, because some of them you can tell where you, you know, but this is like equal ergonomic, you know. Yeah. You can't really tell the difference. So that's in my defense. 
Carry so, on, my wayward son. So later when people asked her about that discrepancy, she refused to address the inquiries. However, at the time that she and James were married, Sharon explained why the license indicated she was a widow. According to her claims, while her family was living in Washington, she married a man. However, her first husband died a short time after their wedding in a car accident, which nothing has been, nobody's been able to substantiate those claims at all. Now, in 1957, after Sharon officially converted to Mormonism, she and James had a second, more formal ceremony. This one was actually held at the Saint, the Salt Lake Mormon Temple in Salt Lake City, which you can't do it if one of the, you know, if either the bride or the groom is not a Mormon, then they cannot hold their ceremony in the temple. Um after the couple was married, James took his new bride and returned to Provo, Utah, where he resumed, resumed, resumed his courses at BYU. However, by the end of the semester, he again put his education on hold and they returned to Missouri. Now, when James and Sharon moved back to Independence, they each got jobs to contribute to the household. Sharon, with no formal education, took odd jobs babysitting and wor working in local retail establishments. James, however, got a job with Bendex Corporation in their aviation department as an electrical engineer. Now, when she didn't start, sh when she didn't start showing as her alleged pregnancy was progressing, she told James and everyone else that she had a miscarriage. I'm showing. You, you. <laughs> Yeah, we know. In your ass, too. Okay, How you know what? Fuck <laughs> all of y'all, all right? That's what I have to say. I make a joke, and what is everybody doing? Pipes up. You know what? Kiss my ass. All of y'all. All y'all? All 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 including the dog. Kiss there you go, ass. George. All y'all. <laughs> Anyways, however, it wasn't long before she did actually become pregnant. She and James welcomed their daughter. I think it's Dana, D-A-N-N-A. -N -N -A, during the fall of 1957. It's Dana with a stutter. After they returned to independence. Now, according to reports, Sharon liked to live pretentiously. She spared no expense when it came to purchasing what she considered the finer things. At first, James' salary with Bendix only allowed them to rent a small house near where his parents lived in Independence. However, it wasn't long before they had a ranch-style house built on their own property, located at 17009 East 26 Terrace. Now, James worked the graveyard shift at Bendix, so he wasn't home at night and would sleep during the day. Sharon had to find ways to fill her days, especially after giving birth to Dana, because, you know, back then, once a woman had a child, she was expected to be a stay-at-home mom. Porn. Fill your days with porn. Well, she began by going out on regular shopping excursions. The more money she spent, the more successful she felt they were as a couple. However, by the time she gave birth to their second, their son, Troy, she had found other things to occupy her time. More specifically, an illicit affair with John Boldes, which was an old friend of hers from high school. So, yeah, porn without the cameras. Yeah, there you <laughs> go, man. Yeah. Now, um, hang on. When a few short years after James and Sharon returned to Independence in 1960, James entertained the possibility of getting a divorce. Now, reports indicate that he wasn't pleased with her lavish spending habits because they were, like, having problems paying bills. And some suspect that he was also aware of her extramarital activities with Sean. 
on March 18th, he sat down with his parents, who were also devout Mormons, and told them about his plans. He told them that if he gave Sharon the house, custody of Dana, and $1,000 a month in alimony, she would consent to giving him a divorce and not fight him. However, since his parents were God-fearing Mormons, they convinced him that dissolving the marriage wasn't the right course of action to take in the eyes of God. Okay. Now, according to reports at the time, Sharon, too, entered entertained possible ways to end her relationship with James. However, they were kind of, you know, not along the same lines. John stated at one point she offered to pay him approximately $1,000 to kill James himself. She even offered to pay him if he could find someone to help her get rid of her husband. But then later in court, he testified and said, but she might have been joking when she made those offers. Right? (laughs) Now... That's awesome. Right. On March 19th, the day after James' parents convinced him to stay in the marriage, a tragic accident occurred. And I'm using air quotes for accident. Well, it may not have been an accident at all, but I'll get into that in a minute. Well, a little bit later, probably in the next episode. According to Sharon, on the day in question, she was doing things in another part of the house while James was sleeping. At approximately 5.30 p.m., she heard the sound of a gunshot coming from the bedroom. She ran to the be- the room and encountered a f- the following scene. This is according to her. Dana, then only two and a half years old, was sitting on the bed next to James, and she was holding a high standard 22 target pistol, which belonged to, you know, James, her father. Now, James was laying on the bed, and he was bleeding from what appeared to be a gunshot wound to the back of his head. Now, Sharon called the authorities immediately. Back then, they didn't have 911. However, James died en route to the hospital. And by the time the ambulance made it there, he was pronounced dead on arrival. When law enforcement officials conducted their investigation, they found the grip of the pistol was well oiled, so they weren't able to collect any viable fingerprints. That being said, nobody thought to conduct a gunshot residue test on either Sharon or Dana. You know, which, well, nowadays that's standard operating procedure. Uh-huh. Dana's a little and, assassin. Well, and I don't know anything about guns or whatever, but is it true that you oil the the grip, Scott? No. Okay. I, I, I've never oiled a grip See, in and that's why life. I was like, that makes no sense. I, could, I understand oiling the barrel and the, you know, the mechanisms. Right. But not oiling the grip because you're holding on to it. Wouldn't it slip through your hands? You would think. I don't yeah, know anybody well, who's ever you know. oiled a grip. Like I said, I don't know anything about guns or anything like that, so I wanted to ask you. Because, you know, you're hillbilly. We oh, there goes the washing machine again, unbalanced. So, Just like you. I'm mentally unstable, not unbalanced. Well, however you want to call it, man. <laughs> Nut job. Whatever Continue. you say. Doing it again. Oh, there we go. So, anyways, um, it's upside down again. No, it's not. It was just I didn't click it because it goes into sleep mode. <sighs> now, investigators interviewed members of the Kind family and several of their neighbors. They also gave st- and they all gave statements saying that it was not uncommon for James to let his daughter play with the guns he had in his collection, which I think is stupid as hell. But to because va- I mean, whether they're unloaded or not, you could always have one in the chamber. You know, that's how my son was born. No, <laughs> you, she had one in the cavern. 
Sorry. I, I had one in, in the, the abyss. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That is not okay. I I apologize because I don't know her, but from what I hear. Hey, guys, <laughs> gather around. Watch this. Echo. 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 <laughs> Down echo, in the echo, deep, dark echo. caverns. Uh, well, I didn't know you were into spelunking. <laughs> I know. I got new gear and everything. I know. To validate Sharon's claims that her daughter was the one that pulled the trigger, one of the detectives did conduct a little experiment with the child. The result of the test determined that Dana was physically capable of pulling the trigger on a gun similar to the one that was used to kill James. So they were like, oh, well, you know, she can do it. So, you know, it's possible that she did. That makes sense. It makes yeah. sense. So with the statements they collected and the results of their little experiment, the investigation was complete. They weren't able to find anything contradicting Sharon's claims that Dana had been playing with one of her father's guns when she accidentally pulled the trigger, which killed him. So James's death was officially ruled accidental homicide. Now, the authorities did confiscate the pistol during their investigation. And when the death was officially declared an accident, she tried to get them to return the pistol to her on several occasions, but they refused. Now, she later acquired another 22 caliber pistol by having one of her male friends purchase it for her. And when he gave her the gun, he said, yeah, when I bought it, I filed it and filed the registration in your name. She's like, uh, no, you need to go change that. I don't want it in my name. <laughs> right? Which, to me, that's questionable as it is. Yeah, no, it's that's not, not like she was a convicted felon and would get in trouble for it. That's not a red flag at all. Like, yeah. not even a little Yeah, that's bit. not even a, what's going on here? That's a little shady. Shady. Like, damn, honey, I'm pretty that, sure you're not up to anything nefarious. Let me go change that for you yeah. real quick, because uh, what's the music going to Yeah, that's shadier than a cloud overcover right there. <laughs> now, after the authorities were finished conducting their investigation, she was allowed to bury James and collect on his life insurance policies. According to the report, she collected a total of approximately $29,000, which would roughly equal 230000 by 20, two, 2022 standards. So, uh, talk about, you know, inflation. Now, um, Patricia... Like her son's dates. <laughs> now, we're gonna, I'm going to talk about somebody else here in a minute, and you'll find out why. Now, Patricia Clements was born in St. Joseph, Missouri, and, one of, and was one of Mr. and Mrs. Elmer Clements' six children. Right after Patricia graduated from Benton High School, she and her high school sweetheart, Walter Jones Jr., were married. A short time after that, Walter joined the United States Marines, and they lived on the West Coast while he was serving out his enlistment. Then when Walter was discharged from service, he and Patricia moved back to Missouri, getting a house in Independence with their two young children. By then, it was 1960, and the couple had been married for approximately five years. Upon moving to Independence, she got a job working for the IRS as a file clerk, and he became a car salesman. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's got a pretty respectable job, even though people hate her, and he's got a sleazy job, and people definitely hate him. <laughs> just just by a little old lady from Pasadena just up the road to get groceries and back. Yeah, that's right. Only 20,000 miles. <laughs> it's got five original miles on it. Really, you can trust me. With one original owner. <laughs> Even though Walter and Patricia were happily married with two children, reports indicate that he had quite a wandering eye when it came to beautiful women. And that's how Sharon entered their life. On April 18th, shortly after Sharon received the payout from James' life insurance policy, she decided it was time to buy herself a new car. So she went to Walter's dealership to purchase a Ford 
Thunderbird that she had had her eye on. Nice car. Yeah. Decent, yeah. Well, yeah. It's like, you know, that's how she and Walter originally met. Not long after Walter sold her the car, the two began having an affair. Now, reports indicate that Sharon thought that Walter would leave Patricia and marry her. I know what happened. What? He looked at her, unzipped his pants. Can I interest you in this? (laughs) You're so dope. Would you like to test drive it? Would you like to ride this? (laughs) (laughs) Check out the luxury features on this hot rod. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well-oiled. Machinery. Ah, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was bad. That was almost as bad as your jokes. <laughs> now, he, you know, he expected, she expected him to, you know, leave his wife and marry her. However, despite having a rocky marriage, he never had any intention of ever divorcing his wife. Now, in May of 1960, Sharon asked Walter to accompany her on a trip to Washington. And he turned down her invitation, and she wound up going on that trip with her brother, Eugene, instead. When she returned on May 25th, the two continued where they had left off with their affair. However, things between them became turbulent when she told him she was pregnant with his child. She was fully expecting him, okay, now he will definitely leave his wife. Instead, he ended their affair. He's like, oh, we're done. <laughs> Smart man. Yeah. Actually, kinda. yeah, I'm going to go with that. Yeah. So, well, and you'll find out she's a psycho Sally. Like, if I ever got my old lady pregnant, I'd be like, no, nah, we're finished. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, you know. No, more, I don't so, want any no, more kids. You Piss wouldn't. off. You would at least be there to support the child. Hell no. I don't like kids. That's why you never had any kids with your wives because I don't then even, they wouldn't have, you wouldn't have to live with them consistently. I barely like my girlfriend, okay? So. Much less. I mean, she gets knocked but out. That's her problem. But he loves his executive assistant. Just saying. No, I hate her. <laughs> My executive assistant uh, is, a, is a twat. A twat waffle. Shut Gets up. on my goddamn nerves all the freaking time. I was going to say, then don't call me at 7 a.m. and say, wake <laughs> up. That's because we have to have a morning meeting. At 7 a.m.? I let you sleep in. Most I'm, people don't get to the office till 9. I'm up at 3 o'clock. You should be too. Not my problem when I go to bed at 4. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. That's yeah, that, that, so. That's maybe you should call me at three so we can have it in that time when I'm not when I'm already awake. No. Yeah. I'm getting. I'm letting you. I'm allowing you to sleep 15 minutes, which is 15 minutes more than I get to. Whatever. I hate you. So when it comes to the following series of events, it was a little difficult for me to piece together what happened. However, I think I managed to sort it out. So bear me, with me as I try to explain. Rawr. Not that. I'm bearing with you. Get it? Whatever. Sharon stated that sometimes... I know. Polar bear. (laughs) Because I'm a polar bear. (laughs) You know, every time I say polar bear or see one, I go, (laughs) So, (laughs) Sharon... That's like the big exaggerated whack on wax off of polar (laughs) Now, Sharon stated that sometime during the afternoon of May 26th, she called Patricia at work and said that her sister and Walter were having an affair with each other, and she made arrangements to meet with Patricia later that evening so they could talk about the situation. So the two women scheduled a time to meet, and after the meeting, Sharon said she dropped Patricia off near her house. According to Walter, Patricia never returned home that evening. When he hadn't heard from her by the next day, he went to the police station and filed a missing persons report. Then after that, he returned home and began calling friends and family 
who he thought she might have had contact with in an effort to kind of investigate the disappearance her, himself to say, hey, maybe I can find her, you know, maybe they know where she is. Yeah, it makes sense, yeah. Yeah. So a couple of the people he contacted worked in carpool with Patricia. They said that she told them she had received a call the day before from a, another woman, and all they, though they did not know, but they did not know who that woman was. According to their statements, Patricia said she and this unknown female had made arrangements to meet after work, so she had the driver of the carpool that afternoon drop her off at said location. Now, according to the other carpool members, when they pulled up and dropped Patricia off, they saw a woman sitting in a car. They noticed that Patricia got into the other woman's vehicle, but they did not recognize the woman as someone they knew. They did, however, give Walter a detailed description of what she looked like. Based on their general descriptions, the, you know, he thought the other woman might have been his former lover, Sharon. Dun, dun, dun. Right? So according to his statements later, he called Sharon and confronted her with his suspicions. He said, did you have anything, you know, at the, he asked her if she had at any time spoken or met with Patricia. And Walter said that Sharon admitted she had called Patricia and met with her later that evening. She even admitted that she told Patricia about the affair Walter was having. However, she then told him that after their meeting, she dropped Patricia off close to the house. And as she drove away, she saw the other woman walk up and engage in a conversation with an unknown man driving a 1957 green Ford. Right? Probably a chomo. Anyway... <laughs> Um, what is that? Oh, when Sharon admitted to Walter that she had been in contact with Patricia on the day she went missing, the tale gets even more twisted. He said that before he hung up the phone, he made arrangements to meet with her personally on Friday evening. He wanted her to provide him with more details regarding what transpired during and after her meeting with his wife. According to her, his own admission later, when he didn't feel she was being very forthcoming with the information, he kind of threatened her. He grabbed her and held a key to her throat in order to get her to tell him what really happened. I'm going like, to lock you I, like a door. <laughs> well, no, and it's like, back then, it's like, they, they kind of use keys to stab people, you know. <laughs> they said women should hold their keys in their hand to attack an attacker. Can me? I call that a date. I know you do. You asked them to do that. Hell yeah. Scratch me with your keys. I mean, granted, I got to pay a little bit extra for that, but it's worth Stab it. Stab me worth with it. your stilettos. Yes. <laughs> Bind me with your raw. No, I'm kidding. I, I'm getting off track now. So anyways, um, Sharon stated that after she had that encounter with Walter, she called John Boldis, you know, her former lover, on the phone and asked him if he would go with her to look for Patricia themselves. He agreed, and the two of them went searching. A few hours later, and mind you, they went searching at night. A few hours later, just before midnight, she and John happened, air quotes, to come across the body of a woman while they were searching a secluded area just outside of Independence. Just pure coincidence. Yeah. Come pure on. Pure that these people stumbled upon a body. They did go out looking. Well, yeah, right there. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's lucky. Yeah. Lucky, man. The, I, I could imagine her leading him around town and then be like, you know what? I think I've done enough and he won't get suspicious that I know where the body is. But um, according. Oh, wait, no. Where was I? Oh, so according. John told the authorities that he was the one that suggested they look for Patricia in that area, which I don't think is true. 
according to his statement, he made the suggestion because it knew he knew it was a remote location, an out-of-the-way place that he and Sharon had often used to have their encounters with each other in the car. So when the body was found, it was clothed in a yellow skirt and black sweater. Once the authorities arrived on the scene, it didn't take them long to positively identify the woman as Patricia. An autopsy revealed that she had been shot approximately four times with a 22 caliber pistol. Now, keep that in mind. Patricia had been shot once in the stomach, and the wound was a through-and-through. The coroner also determined that she had been shot twice in her shoulder, with a bullet taking a downward trajectory, and the bullet that killed Patricia entered her head near her mouth with an upward trajectory. Four, four bullets. Well, and it's Uh, like, so uh, that uh, tells uh, me that Patricia was already on the ground when she got shot in the shoulders. Yeah, probably. You know what I mean? And she was, like, standing there when somebody, like, shot her in the face. Now, Patricia's skirt had been raised up around her waist, and testing determined there were powder burns from the murder weapon on the hemline. According to reports, with the powder burns, the authorities determined that at least one of the four gunshots was fired at close range. Now, so if her hemline's pulled up, around you know then i can see like when somebody goes to shoot her in the shoulder if they're down over the powder burns would get on the hemline you know that's how i pictured it so um the coroner determined that patricia had died on may 27th you know the day she met with the time of death around 9 p.m and her funeral was held on may 31st now the authorities launched an investigation as soon as patricia's body was found on may 28th they started by questioning john walter and Sharon, you know, the three people involved. When John and Walter were interviewed, they both gave investigators written statements in which they freely admitted they, that they had both been, quote, romantically involved with Sharon at some point. The two men also agreed to submit to a polygraph test at a later date. Now, initially, when she was questioned, she answered all of the detective's questions orally. But when they asked her to sign a written statement, she said, nope, not going to happen. And when they asked her I to give take oral a polygraph, only. When, she's, they, when they asked her to take a polygraph, she's like, "Nope, not going to happen." So she was interviewed a second time on the morning of May third, and John's second interrogation took place on May thirty first. Now, both Walter and John met with a polygrapher on June first, and the results of those tests indicated that each of them were being truthful with their statements. Wait a minute. What does a guy who has multiple wives have to do with all this? No, polygrapher. that's a polygamer. <laughs> that's a polygamist. That's what I meant. Whatever. <laughs> so the detectives contacted Sharon's brother, Eugene, and asked him to come in for questioning, but he said, nope, not going to happen. <laughs> he wouldn't even answer anything. Um... While investigators were busy conducting interviews with potential witnesses and everyone they thought might be involved, another team set about processing the crime scene. Now, the team made several attempts to locate the murder weapon. They even tried to find the bullet that had been shot through Patricia's abdomen. They, the team sifted through the dirt where the body was found and even enlisted the aid of a local Boy Scout troop to search the, the area for a weapon. At some point, they were able to recover a spent slug from a 22 caliber firearm. It was found buried in the ground where Patricia's body had been found. With that discovery, the authorities determined that some of Patricia's gunshot wounds had occurred at the location where her body was discovered. That also tells me she was stomped in the sh- stomach from above, too. 
So after conducting several grid searches in the area and even dragging nearby bodies of water, they could never find, they were never able to locate the murder weapon, which they assumed was a 22 caliber pistol. Now, during Patricia's autopsy, the medical examiner found a white powdery substance in her hair. Cocaine? No, you'll find out. It's kind of comical to me. <laughs> Initially, they thought hmm, the substance was trace evidence from another crime scene location. So the working theory was that she was shot at another location and the killer transported her body to the dump location where it was found. Investigations on that theory led the team, the search teams, to go around to buildings in the area for any sort of trace evidence that would indicate a crime had taken place in one of them. More specifically, to find any substance that would match the unknown substance the medical examiner had pulled from her hair. In the end, this is hilarious. Tests on that sub- substance determined it was just fly larvae. Larva. <laughs> so they dropped that line of the investigation. That's probably a good it's idea, like, right? It's like, dude, you can't tell what fly larva, like a maggot, as opposed to like another substance. Well, it's Missouri. And how do you think a larva, uh, like a maggot, is powdery? I mean, come on. Yeah, it's a powdery one, man. Huh? It's powdery. Yeah, it's like, no, dude. And only a day old, that maggot is going to be nice and, like, moist and juicy and fat. That was gross, but yeah. So, (laughs) law enforcement officials actually arrested Sharon on May 31st, the same day that Patricia's funeral was held, at approximately 11 p.m. That same day, investigators with the Jackson County Sheriff's Office asked the district attorney to reinvestigate the death of her husband. Right? So right. the day after she was arrested, her attorneys, Alex Peebles and Martha Sperry Hickman, what country names, <laughs> filed a writ of habeas corpus with the court. Now, that is a motion filed with the court in which the petitioner, in this case Sharon, claims they are being unlawfully detained or imprisoned. A high or imprisoned. A hearing was scheduled for later that afternoon, and during the hearing, the judge granted her release with a $20,000 bail, and a preliminary hearing was scheduled for June 16th, which I don't see how, because to me, I always thought a habeas corpus was filed after they received their sentence, and they thought their sentence was too extreme. That's what I thought, right? too. But apparently she thought, I'm arrested for murder, but I still need to be let out. <laughs> that makes no sense. It's Missouri. In the yes, in the sixties. I just it's Missouri. Missouri's still a freaky ass place. So. That's true. It's like right next door to Arkansas, That's so exactly. it bleeds over. Yeah, exactly. They're they're, they're catching <laughs> the Arkansas live in virus. The Ozarks are like they're screwed. So even though the authorities had officially filed charges against Sharon, they didn't stop their investigations. They determined that the twenty-two caliber pistol that accidentally shot James was not the same one that was used to kill Patricia. Which, especially since they were able to verify that the gun was still in, being held at the sheriff's office. Duh. <laughs> right? <laughs> However, they were able to find a man that worked with Sharon who said that in the beginning of May, she approached him and asked him to purchase a twenty-two caliber for her. And he also told the authorities that he did make that purchase. But, so the authorities went and searched her house. They were not able to find that alleged gun. They did, however, find an empty box, which they assumed had been used to store a handgun at some point. Now, when Sharon was questioned about their find, she told them that she had taken the gun with her on her trip to Washington and lost it. However, she later changed her story to state that the gun just one day disappeared. Got up, walked out of the house. It happens to my guns all the time. Sometimes they get out. 
They walk up the street, do some. Well, yeah, because guns things. kill people. Yeah, you know, by they, themselves. They, they they go to the club. They you know shake their booties. <laughs> they shake their booties. Fire fire around. That's right. They come back with hand stamps and smell like cheap hookers <laughs> kinda, and booze. Kind of like your penis does, and your credit cards, you know, maxed yeah, out. <laughs> exactly. It runs the my my penis is the same thing. It runs to uh-huh. Vegas. It steals the it steals the car. You know, it comes back with hand stamps all over it. Going, look, it was just a wild weekend, man. Don't don't ask what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Exactly. <laughs> So two days after she was arrested on June 2nd, the authorities did take Walter Jones into custody and he was charged as a material witness to the murder, but released later that same day on a $2,000 bail just in case, you know, they needed him to stay in the area, you know. So at the time, detectives investigating Patricia's murder and the district attorney's office criticized certain aspects of the entire investigation, specifically the way the autopsy was handled. Now, remember, she was shot four times, right? They found the through-and-through bullet, right? Right, right, Okay, so she's got at least three more bullets in her. Now, they felt that when the medical examiner, Dr. Hugh Owens, conducted the autopsy, he should have recovered all of the bullets from Patricia's body and run tests on the contents of her stomach, which is standard operating procedure. You would think, yeah. Yeah. Dr. Owens said to the critics by state, you know, responded to the critics by stating that he did recover one of the three bullets that were in her body. And he also justified his decision not to collect the contents of her stomach and run tests on it. According to him, before he began the autopsy, her body had been prepared by an undertaker. Therefore, any tests that would have con- that would have been conducted on the contents of her stomach would have been useless because they were able, they were already chemically altered by the undertaker's preparation process. Now, but they would still be able to tell what it was she ate. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe not when she ate it, but what it was. Now, however, Owens did issue a statement that when he performed the autopsy, he did not visibly see any signs that she had anything in her stomach. You know, keep that in mind, too. On June 17th, the court issued an order for Patricia's body to be exhumed. This was done so that the other three, the other two bullets could be recovered. They also wanted the medical examiner to collect the tissue samples and any contents that might remain in her stomach to have them all tested. I got to change something here real quick. Sorry. Is it your underwear? No, no asshole. Smelling all nasty. I had to change the number of bullets from three to two because for some reason I put three. Three! Three bullets! Ah, 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 ah. Okay, where was I? You're in Washington. I know, but hang on. In Vancouver. Two bullets. Okay. Anyways, I don't know why I, where my mouse took me, but... Uh, Sharon was officially arraigned on July 11th, and the judge presiding over the case denied her bail. Like, he revoked it. However, the Court of Appeals in Kansas City overruled his decision a couple days later, and they based their decision on the fact that the prosecution, they felt the prosecution's case was heavily reliant on circumstantial evidence and not actual proof. Now, on July 18, 1960, Sharon was released from custody on a $24,000 bond. Since Sharon's pregnancy was so far advanced, the court made the decision to postpone her trial until after she had the baby. And she gave birth to Marla Christine on January 16, 1961. Now, 
Even though she was facing two murder charges, one for the death of Patricia and the other for the death of her late husband, the trials were held separately, as opposed to combining them like they sometimes do. Now, she went on trial for the death of Patricia first and began sometime in mid, which began sometime in mid-June 1961. Now, I want to clarify this here because we talked about it with Keith earlier, you know, this week, that when you're arrested on multiple murders like that, your, your attorneys want them to process the late, the more, you know, recent case and then work backward in time because then they cannot hold any of those murder charges that you are convicted of against you in your other car- cases. Right. You know, because they were murders that happened after the fact instead of before the fact. You know, so some people might be like, well, why didn't they charge with James first? Because he was the first one to die. That's why. Now, in fact, they started the jury selection process around June 13th. By the time the actual trial proceedings began a couple of days later, they had a full jury of 12 men and three alternates that were also male. So she had an all-male jury, which she was a very... Oh, I'll tell you here in a minute. I get into it. So with when both the prosecution and the defense gave their opening statements, it was clear that each side was basing their case on the clear discrepancy of when Patricia's death had taken place. The pathologist testified that her time of death occurred approximately, quote, six hours after she ate lunch on May 26th. With that estimated time of death, the prosecution argued that she was dead for more than 24 hours before her body was found on May 27th. However, the defense argued that her death was only a matter of six to eight hours before her body was found. So it's like, you know, one was saying, okay, she ate, you know, six to eight hours, you know, before she died on the next the day. And then they're saying that 68 hours was actually on the day she was found. You know what I'm saying? Right. Okay. That's where the discrepancy is. Now, during his opening statement, the prosecutor, J.R. Not Hill, told the jury they would be hearing testimony from Walter and Lieutenant Harry Nesbitt that would lay out Sharon's motives for murdering Patricia. Now, according to Nesbitt's testimony, Sharon told him that she had begun to fear Walter and her were drifting apart. In order to prevent that from happening, she said that she offered to financially support him. And he believed that Sharon murdered Patricia because she didn't want to lose her religion. And he believed that Sharon didn't want to... That's a Nesbitt belief, sorry. I didn't think that was clear. Murdered Patricia because she didn't want to lose her relationship with Walter. Now, Walter took took the stand and testified that after Sharon returned from Washington, she told him that she was pregnant and it was his child. He said that when he heard the news, he decided it was best just to end the relationship completely. So he believed that she was motivated to kill Patricia in order to keep their relationship going. Now, as he laid out the case against Sharon, Hill wasn't able to prove Sharon owned or had possession of the weapon that murdered Patricia. Granted, they could prove that she owned a twenty-two caliber because they had the testimony of the guy who bought it and that the gun used to kill Patricia was a twenty-two caliber. They just couldn't prove that they were the same twenty-two caliber. Right. Right. Now, Roy Thrush was called to the stand. He was a person who bought who sold Sharon's male co-worker the pistol she claimed to have lost now he did take the detectives to a tree on his property which he claimed to have shot with bullets from that gun 
in question. However, when they extracted the bullets from the trees and had them tested, they weren't able to prove they came from the same weapon because they were too damaged from, you know, the impact and all that. So the prosecution wound up calling approximately 27 people to the stand to testify and share uh, to testify in her trial. When the testimony was heard from their witnesses, they rested on June 21st, 1961. The defense took less than 48 hours to present their case. In that time, they called approximately 14 witnesses to the stand to testify on behalf of Sharon. However, she herself never took the stand. Um, hang on, probably because she's a lion hoe and they would figure that out now <laughs> sorry that was kind of my little side so me i know a little bit but um the bulk of the defense witnesses testimony focused on refuting the prosecution's claim that sharon had both a motive and means to murder patricia now each witness took the stand to tell the courts that there was absolutely no reason that she would want to kill patricia not only that there was absolutely nothing that could link the pistol that was allegedly owned by the defendant to the pistol that was used to commit the murder once both sides delivered their closing arguments the jury broke for the deliberation now according to the saint petersburg evening independent they were only out for one hour and 38 minutes but then the reading eagle which is another newspaper reported that was one hour and 37 minutes. Really? Did they have to, like, I put that in there because I'm thinking that is the most ridiculous thing to argue about right there. Either way, the jury didn't take very long to decide whether or not she was guilty of murdering the other woman. Ultimately, they acquitted her of the murder charges. They stated that the case presented by the prosecution had, quote, just too many loopholes. If this whole case hadn't been bizarre enough, this would be the icing on the cake, so to speak. As soon as the jury's verdict was read and the judge dismissed the court, one of the jurors named Ogden Stevens motioned for Sharon to come over to him so that he could get her autograph. Needless to say, the press caught the incident on camera because she granted his request. Even though she was acquitted of the murder charge, she still had another charge pending. The bailiff took Sharon back into custody and returned her to the county jail where she waited to go on trial for the death of her husband. Which, so that's the end of part one. I'll get into the death of her husband and more in the next episode. Grooving. I'm, I'm speechless. Oh, yeah? I know. It's like, really? I told you it was kind of convoluted and bizarre. It's like, really? Did that really happen? But yeah, Very. it happened. All right. Remember, you can check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Uh, check us out on Facebook. Go to Citizens of Brutal Nation. You can interact with us and other people that love serial killers. Check out our Etsy store for great pricing on t-shirts. Yeah, for really funny ones. Funny, yeah. And we also added Sasquatch-based t-shirts, too. They look just you like know, Tammy. <laughs> and they are really comical, too, you know, and we'll be promoting them on a different Facebook uh, group, but yeah, it's, they're pretty cool. This show's copyright 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved, and we'll see you guys later. Bye bye. Bye, everybody.